This is Jared Fishman, and you're listening to the 20-Sided Gamified Podcast. The past 20 years, I've blended games and education together in the classroom. I'm a history teacher, a game-based learning specialist, and I serve on the board of HMGS NextGen Inc. and the North American Simulations and Games Association. I'm looking to broaden my own knowledge of game-based learning by talking to the people that do it best. Pull up a chair, get your dice ready, and enjoy the ride. All right, everybody. Um, as you know, this is Jared from HMGS Next Gen Inc. and Nisaga. Uh, very, very excited today. Um, especially excited because of our pre-podcast conversation. But I have uh, Barry Hilton here. Um, if you don't know him, you should know him. He is an unbelievably prolific rules writer. And in fact, um, I, I mentioned that mentioned this to him earlier. Um, everybody that I seem to have talked to when it comes to the idea of writing rules and and people like big names that are out there and just interesting names, uh, Barry's name came up pretty much every single time. So I reached out to him and uh, he is here. So Barry, hello. Hello. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to it. Indeed. So, um, well, first off, I have to compliment the. Uh, so again, unfortunately for all of you listeners, you can't you can't see my extensive library that I'm in. But also, um, you've got some great looking books in the background and artwork. Are those from like your rule books and things like that? Some of them are uh, on one side of the wall. There, you can see some paintings. Uh, those are cover paintings from some of the rule sets that we brought out, done by a very talented American called Clarence Harrison, who is my uh, co-pilot, if you like, on a lot of the rules projects. So mm-hmm. Clarence does a lot of the formatting, and he also does a lot of the cover art. Uh, so yes, this is Clarence's work. And wow, very nice, very very nice. So um, again, why don't we start here, sir? So um, if nobody has has heard of you, let's just pretend. Even though sh- that would be a shock to me if you're a war gamer, and that that would be the case. But let's say somebody is listening that's not a war gamer. How would you describe um, your work in the field? Uh, quite simply, I have been a passionate uh, advocate of the 17th century and its interest to sort of world history, if you like. Uh, and that primarily, my rule sets are built around, let's say, bringing the 17th century to life uh, on the tabletop. Although I do stuff which is not 17th century, of course, but primarily that's been my, my area of focus. So again, that's pretty interesting. Like when I think about all the different sort of rules are out that are out there, um, that tends to be a little bit of a black hole. So how did you how did you kind of find your passion for that particular era? I fell into the black hole actually by accident. I oh, really? Was, yeah, I was at a convention about it was nineteen ninety or ninety one, and it was in Edinburgh, which is in Scotland, and I saw this really fantastic table. Uh, there was lots of guys really interested in the game that they were playing. I didn't really recognize what I was looking at at all. I started, got in conversation with one of the guys who was running the game who happened to be a history teacher like yourself. And oh, cool. he, I said, what is this? And he said, uh, oh, it's the, it was the Battle of Near Winden, 1693. And I thought, well, I don't really know anything about this. Tell me a little bit about it. And we got talking and then by, you know, happenstance, I happened to work near where he worked and he invited me up to his house to game and I got hooked. I absolutely got hooked. Um, I knew a little bit about the period, I thought, but when I 
started to game it and then research it a little bit, I realised how much I didn't know. So, mm-hmm. and it's, it is a war game in backwater, as you say. It's not Napoleonic, it's not American Civil War, World War II, English Civil War, the, you know, the usual suspects. It's something that people think they know a little bit about and then when you start to talk to them about it, they don't know anything about it. But usually right. that is the hook and people think, hey, wait a minute, I need to find out a little bit more about this. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, while you were sort of talking about that, it, it, we have maybe not the time period in common, but I feel the same way about World War One. So I can remember as clear as day being 10 years old. So I got into this hobby very young, so my dad, and just being fascinated at a game convention where, and this was not a popular period at the time, like in the early 90s, um, somebody had built like a modular trench board. And I will never forget guys had and i don't know if you've ever seen these but like those kind of like periscope kind of mirror things where you kind yeah, of look through them. the top yeah so you kind of get like a battlefield view and that put me like what looking at that game my father still to this day is like why do you like this so much <laughs> um but that totally put me on my my career path like i practically got a doctorate about the first world war and i feel exactly the same way you, way you do where so many people think they understand that conflict but in actuality like most of the time they're not exactly on point when it comes to the way the war was fought, you know? So, very cool. with a, Yeah, provides you with a great canvas to work on, um, not just from uh, an evangelical point of view, uh, and I mean that taking the period out to people that might be interested in it, but also to build interest because if people have no expectation uh, and you keep opening doors for them, and then that door leads to another door, which leads to another door, which leads to four more doors. Uh, and that's what the way this period is, because it is so under uh, exploited as a wargaming opportunity. Although I've got to say over the last 30 years, I've managed to pull a few people into the boat, if you like, which is good. No, for sure. Um, I mean, I've always been drawn to the just the uniforms particularly of that period. I mean, if you're if you're somebody who loves the painting element of that era, um, I mean, the closest thing that I would say that's next to it would probably be like the Renaissance, you know, like in terms of color and cool flags and things along those lines. Oh, all true. It's a, it's a transition period between, if you like, what you've mentioned there, the Renaissance um, and the sort of formalization of national armies and countries, uh, obviously in Europe primarily. Uh, where they standardized on flag design, standardized on uniforms, uh, equipment, etc. This mm-hmm. is the point just before that where there's non-standardization. So you've still got that sort of semi-heraldic look to some of it. The uniforms are quite simple, but they're also quite colorful. So in the same army, you can have 10 different coat colors, whereas, you know, 40, 50 years later, you wouldn't have that. You would have all red or all white or all blue or whatever. Right, because um, it's, it's right before the Wars of Succession, right? So it's right before Marlborough, yeah. right? Yeah, it's... Well, he was, of course, um, a young officer during this period, so his military career started in the 1670s, so he he was his, he was learning his craft, if you like, through this these various wars. And by the time he was the the generalissimo, if you like, he was in his fifties. So 
I mean, he'd, he'd learned everything pretty much and was then putting it into practice as, a, as an army commander. So, yeah, and it was still in that period and in, in the period of uh, the Spanish succession, Malburian, as some people call it. I refuse to call it that because it's a sort of a, appropriation by the Anglo-Saxon world of a, a large conflict. Um, right. Yeah, war of the Spanish succession, Marlborough was was uh, the sort of co-commander of the Allied armies. Yeah. Yeah. So if we back up for a sec, um, so you go to your to this convention in the early nine early nineties, you had said, and you know, yeah. this is where you kind of see this time period. So were you a avid history person before that? In other words, like what brings you to that convention? Is it the history? Is it wargaming, both or yeah, uh, well, I pretty much like all kids of the 60s, uh, I'm sure in the US as well as in the UK, were kind of brought up on John Wayne movies and, um, you know, Sands of Iwo Jima and, and all the sort of in which we serve and all the, the British war movies that were being made after World War II. We all collected airfix, plastic, uh, polythene figures, and mm-hmm. I pretty much got into that. That was, you know, the, all the comics we we read were all kind of war comics and stuff. So I think from an early age, four or five, when I start to read, uh, then I was starting to be interested in military history. And of course, I had family that served in, in the Second World War. So, uh, yeah, that, that was where it started. And then I think I started to get into wargaming when I was about eight or nine. When, when you get past throwing uh, a ball at your figures when they're all lined up on the carpet to knock them <laughs> down, when you get past that stage and you think there could be another way to do this, uh, I started to read the, the usual books, you know, Charles Grant and stuff like that. Right. So did you, uh, when you were growing up, did you hear stories from your family about the Second World War or sure. even going? What about the First World War? I mean, did you have family that was involved in that, too? Yes, uh, my family are actually half Canadian. So my grandfather was Canadian infantryman in World War One. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my father uh, was in the Air Force uh, in World War II. Um, my other grandfather, my maternal grandfather, was at Dunkirk, uh, El Alamein, uh, oh, wow. Salerno. Uh, so he was in the army. So my, my family were all heavily involved in the war and all came through it, which I'm very glad to say. Yeah, I was about to say, I mean, those are some serious, especially the World War II bit. I mean, those are some serious engagements. Um, so pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah. My grandfather was uh, captured at Dunkirk, escaped, um, got on a boat back to England. Was uh, it, My gran had the telegram to say he was missing in action, presumed dead. And he turned up about three weeks later was home for a couple of weeks and then they sent him out to Africa and he never mm-hmm. came back for six years. Wow. So, yeah, so he was in Africa, then Sicily, then Italy and finished the war in Austria, I think, that's, somewhere. Yeah, that's pretty, inc- how, that, that's pretty incredible. How did he get captured? I mean, was, did you uh, ever find out? Well, uh, no, um, it was, uh, I didn't, uh, he was wounded. He was bayoneted in the thumb. He had a wound on his thumb. I always remember that. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't like to talk about Dunkirk. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of British soldiers didn't like to talk about it uh, because it was very traumatic for the, mm-hmm. I mean, the army was basically cornered on the French coast and, uh, you know, it was an amazing escape for 338,000 men, but mm-hmm. still it was a big defeat. And, um, you know, I think that spurred the the country on because what came after that was the Battle of Britain and um, then a long slog until, you know, 42 or whatever when they started winning again. Uh, America was then involved in the war. And, uh, yeah, so uh, he didn't talk about it much. Um, 
yeah, he was in the service corps, which were these were the truck drivers. Mm-hmm. And it's quite interesting because obviously America's a, a country built on the motor industry, if you like, and, and trucking and cars. But during World War II, very few um, armies were motorized. The British Army was motorized in 39, um, uh, but truck drivers were at a premium. So he was a truck driver in civilian life. He was also a reservist. Uh, and when he, he was called up and led um, basically a frontline truck troop, if you like, taking ammunition and soldiers to the front line. So that was drivers were in. It's amazing what job roles become valuable in a war. But mm-hmm. in the British Army in World War Two, truck drivers were very valuable assets because yeah. we didn't have that many. You know, it's funny you bring that up in the sense that uh, I was, again, I think you already know this. I'm a classroom teacher. I do teach a course on military history. And we were just talking about motorization during World War Two, And again, again, it's not to, it's not to, I love World War Two games. Don't get me wrong. Like I, it's not, I'm not picking at it necessarily, but you know, I think a lot of times when people put those mechanized armies onto the battlefield, you know, they think that the entire German army was like that. And in fact, we did this great reading by this scholar named Donardo who kind of breaks down some of those myths and actually looks at the German army in 39 and 40. And again, I think people would be very surprised to kind of read about how many foot sloggers there really were, you know? So, and also, I mean, the German army was actually horse-drawn up until right. after after the war started. It was largely horse-drawn. Right. Uh, so they, they used um, wagon transport mostly, um, not truck transport, which is it, it is you know crazy because obviously in most movies you see these Opel Blitz trucks flying down the road and then you know right. they're getting strafed by thunderbolts and all that kind of stuff. They should they should have lines of wagons really. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my students—they're really funny. Like they'll like—I I usually will get somebody be like, "Mr. Frisian, how how can how can I imagine a bunch of people on horses riding next to like a modern tank?" And it's like they still do it now. Like I'm yeah. rather sure, um, as awful as this Ukraine conflict is, I'm rather sure there are plenty of horse-drawn transports and things along those lines. You know, somewhere in the country. So, well, I, granted, you- I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. Well, you know, if there's going to be horses, that Ukraine would be the place. They, they are the Cossacks. So, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, and you know they're they're digging into that Cossack um, true grit, if you like, right yeah. now. So um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they had mobile units yeah. on horseback uh, at the front line somewhere. Yeah, uh, not to be macabre, but I'm sure Osprey Publishing is thinking about when when that first book is coming out about this conflict. And again, <laughs> oh, I know sure. it's so macabre, you know. No, they will be. They will be. Yeah. Um, so I guess, again, kind of backing up just a little bit, like in terms of, uh, in terms of your story. So I guess the question would be like, so you see all of these amazing, uh, you know, miniatures at this con, um, you really start getting into the 1600s. So does rules writing come first or do you start painting miniatures? What direction did you go? Well, I always was, um, into painting, um, I mean, I'm, I do still paint a lot, but not as much, not nearly as much as I used to do because I've got so many other pools on my time. But um, I started to paint and I was using other rules for the period because I didn't really have any understanding. But the more, what happened was we were using a quick play set of rules at the time at this guy's house uh, with this little gaming group. I liked the games, they were fantastic. But the more I got into the period, the more I felt that the rules had gaps. Mm-hmm. And I, I like to fill the gap. You know, I think, right, there needs to be something there because that 
isn't quite what should be happening. It's a mechanism, it's covering it, but it's not covering it very well. So basically, I took that two-page set of fast play rules, which I can't even remember where we got them, and I sort of deconstructed them and then started again and wrote a set of rules which I made. I called it Beneath the Lily Banners. Um, in fact, originally I called it Under the Lily Banners, but I found a set of rules. It was a board game, actually, a, a 30 Years War board game called Under the Lily Banners. So rather than walk into that minefield of potential copyright violation and uh, names and things, I know you can't copyright a name, but I just wanted to avoid that stuff. I, I, I changed it to Beneath the Lily Banners, and I made that set of rules free. And I used my website to let people download it and, and use the rules that they wanted. And Clarence Harrison in the States, he, he's in Virginia. He contacted me. He downloaded the rules and he said, look, if you ever want to do a book project with these rules, I'd be happy to do the graphics. You know, mm -hmm. not, not a commercial arrangement. We would just work together as two guys that were interested in the hobby. And that was where the first rules came from. So we published them. I can't remember. It was over 10 years ago, maybe 12 years, 13 years ago, we did a first edition. Uh, it was in a style that people hadn't done before. I wasn't really aware of that, Clarence, and I just wanted to make a nice book. I liked to take pictures of miniatures as well. And we did a sort of glossy with lots of nice setup shots and diagrams and stuff. And I I'm not going to claim that we started that trend, but I have heard a lot of people say that the first edition of Lily Banners was one of the first books that inspired then that wave of illustri highly illustrated, well-laid-out graphics-type rules. Yeah. So you beat me to the punch because not only do I agree, but I've heard the same thing. I mean, ultimately, um, in looking at that original book, it absolutely reminds me of like essentially like modern the modern books that you might see out of warlord or you know some other some other bigger companies and again i think you had said this but so the the very first edition so when you kind of went from you know the fast play and and really built the rules uh -huh. when was that exactly like that first iteration uh, i should actually have a copy of the rules next to me but i don't mm -hmm. <laughs> i've got i've got the cover art on the wall but i don't right. have a, i don't have a copy of the rules here because actually the book sold out pretty quickly um i think it was about it was round about 2000 and it was the early 2000s yeah. i honestly jared i can't remember i mean we're we're looking at the fourth edition now so right um it was it was about then mm -hmm. i mean i got i got into the period in 1990 and then I messed around with other people's rules and played lots of games, did lots of painting through the 90s. I'm sure I started to pull the rules together in the late 90s. And then we went to a PDF version, which was just kind of black and white kind of thing. Right. And then Clarence got involved. So it would have been sometime in the early noughties, perhaps. Right. And would you say that, that, that Beneath the Lily Banners, is that what you are most known for, would you say? Or... He probably, um, yeah, probably. I mean, we've done, uh, a, you, you can probably, obviously your listeners won't be able to see it, but there's yeah. a, a photograph in the wall of a French Lancer, Lane Lancer. That's the cover of Republic to Empire, um, which is a Napoleonic set of rules, which also has done very well, despite my complete neglect of it. Uh, it survives without me supporting it at all. Mm -hmm. it, it, I wrote that probably about 12 years, 10, 12 years ago. 
Uh, that still continues to sell pretty well. Um, I do have a big interest in Napoleonic, as I do in World War II and American Civil War. But primarily, I just stuck to the 17th century. I think one of the things about my approach to wargaming, if, if you like, is I when, I when I get into something, I like to really focus on it. I don't like to grasshopper around from period to period. Um, I don't see myself as an opportunist. Sometimes I think a lot of wargaming is quite fad-based. Mm-hmm. So people are looking for the next, you know, the next thing, whatever that is. Uh, and, you know, you see some really tortured versions of uh, periods coming out, you know, where people, I mean, fusion's great and evolution is great in terms of ideas and stuff. But some of the stuff is so contrived that mm-hmm. comes out these days, I think to myself, you know, that's just somebody trying to milk some money of either gamers or figured collectors or whatever. Um, so I just decided to, as they say over here, stick to the knitting and uh, do what um, I know, which is the 17th century, which I really, I don't see any reason to leave it. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, don't get me wrong. There are, what I'm about to describe, there are definitely companies and rule sets that that do what i'm about to say that i'm completely fine with and enjoy like bolt action would be a good example of that i don't play competitively but especially for kids kids love that game um and i enjoy it as well but that said i don't know when you're talking about fads like the thing that comes to mind that i've seen in the last i would say five or ten years is like anytime i see a company that puts the rules out and has like 10 different things you need from the game and you can only get it from them yeah, that's usually a little bit of a warning sign for me. Like, not yeah. to say that I won't play it. Yeah. Um. But you know that I and yeah, and you're right. Like, definitely some like weird stuff, you know, coming out. But again, like I, I literally talked to Rick Priestley in the first episode, uh, for this podcast about this very point. It's like, am I putting out this product to make money? Am I putting out this product and these rules because I really like the time period and don't care about profit? And those two things can can sometimes butt heads. I find. Well, of course, most hobby businesses started with an enthusiast and on their own, probably, or with a friend doing something out of the, you know, their garage or whatever. And then, if it's a good idea or they've had some staying power, it develops. But what happens is, the bigger your operation becomes commercially the hungrier it becomes because you have to pay salaries, you have to pay for premises, stock, and all sorts of things. And so that that means you're forced sometimes into just developing new products in order just to keep the wheels turning. Yeah. Um, And I think you can see, you know, without no names, no pack drill, but you can see some organizations that clearly have a strategy to dominate the market i mean that's clearly what they're out to do uh whether that be by bringing new products out or whether it be by acquisition i.e buying up smaller ranges i mean some companies are quite acquisitive and their staff uh, are expanding the premises are expanding so uh, you know I, I totally get it it's not a criticism it's just that it's a commercial fact that if you go that route you have to keep feeding the beast yeah. Um, whereas if you are, you don't have those particular aspirations, you, you can maybe focus a little bit more and stay true to your roots, if you like, if that makes sense. It makes total sense. Where do you feel like you fall? Like just in terms of, because I'm sure towards the end of this podcast, we'll talk about like, you know, what your future plans are. But I yeah. guess where do you stand when it comes to this question? Well, I'm not a full time 
hobby company. I mean, I have a hobby company, of course, uh, and a publishing company. Um, but my, my main job is something else. Uh, so I find that this is not particularly scalable for me at the moment. Uh, I mean, the next, uh, so I, everything that I do, apart from my cooperative work with Clarence, uh, and he's hugely productive and supportive, but he's doing things on the graphics side and the design side. Uh, when it comes to manufacturing, so I uh, don't sculpt. Mm-hmm. I have a sculptor, uh, a full-time sculptor, but I do all the casting uh, mm-hmm. for the range. I do all the mail order. I do all the supplier liaison, all that kind of stuff. And I do that in my spare time when I'm not doing my, my day job, if you like. So it would be great for me to take one or two people on right now. That would be fantastic. They would be really useful. It means I could concentrate on the productive stuff, writing scenarios, painting, all that design sort of side. Um, but at the moment, I'm trying to balance that. So I'm, I'm a sort of one-man uh, business, if you like. like. One-man yeah. band. <laughs> yeah, a, a one-man band, literally, yeah. Um, uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm at the, that extreme, if you like. And, uh, you know, it takes up pretty much all of my spare time. I do see it now as a little bit of a job. I, 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 the figure company was a complete accident. Um, I didn't ever intend to have a figure company I was quite happy writing rules. I was quite happy uh, doing articles for magazines, painting and playing, organizing small conventions and things. But uh, a guy who had asked me for some uh, support uh, and has he wanted to bring a 17th century figure range out. And he asked me for some ideas and some guidance on what was proper uniform-wise poses and things like that. So I, I gave some intellectual sort of support on that, but that was it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he unfortunately became quite ill and he didn't want to carry on with the business and he asked if I would buy it. I didn't really want to let him down and I said, yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, the, the the range had, at that point, it had something like eight codes, I mean, 40 different figures or something. Mm-hmm. Um, we now have over 300 codes um, and they've they've developed since I took the, the, the company over. Uh, so Warfare Miniatures as the figure company. It wasn't my name. I, I that, that was the previous owner's name. Uh, I took it over in the very early stages. He only had it for about a year, and I've had it now for about nine years. So, uh, But it was it was uh, an adoption, I feel like. Right. It, 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 I, am not the, I am not the biological parent of Warfare Miniatures. <laughs> I, I am its ad- adoptive parent, yeah. Right. And everything is, would, would you say everything that you do falls under sort of like uh, the League of Augsburg name? Uh, well, actually, that, that probably is quite confusing for people because the League of Augsburg is a flag of convenience, if you like. So it's like Panamanian registered freighter or something like that at sea. Mm-hmm. Um, it, there is nobody in the League of Augsburg apart from me. So if you can be in a club on your own, that's me. Um, it's just a name I used to book tables at conventions and I now use it because the the websites and, and the blogs and things that I've done over the years have used that title. I've just kept it going, but it is not a product name. So the League of Augsburg is a sort of umbrella title for my output, if you like, as a wargamer. But the official name of the companies uh, are Warfare Miniatures for the figure company, Word Twister Publishing for the books, and we also have Arc Royal um, Miniatures, which is the ship's um, line that we do as well. So those are like three 
product names, if you like. But League of Augsburg is the efforts of Barry Hilton, if you like. Right. It sounds incredibly organised. Uh, yeah, um, maybe it does, but it doesn't feel like it. <laughs> well, there is <laughs> here, a lot going on. And here, there's a lot going on, but uh, right. it it's not. it doesn't always feel... Yeah, you know, front of house probably looks quite organised. Back of house sometimes it's not as organised. But then again, uh, back of house, uh, any stage production on Broadway or a movie or whatever is probably chaotic as well. So, right. yeah, I don't think there's any news in that. Gotcha. <laughs> so are you a, 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 a person on the scene when it comes to like all the different gaming conventions in the UK and Europe? Like, do you try to go to a lot of them or? I, I have done. I have uh I have put games on at um, uh, Hamburg's Tactica, um, Antwerp's show, which uh, Crisis, unfortunately, is not running anymore for a variety of reasons, including Brexit. Mm-hmm. Um, at the bigger shows in the UK, over, over the years, I probably exhibited a couple of hundred shows, I think. And the States, of course, at Historicon, uh, I've uh, done my... Um, games at Historicon with Clarence two or three times. I think I've been at Historicon. Um, it's it's quite a logistical activity to get things across for a war game because obviously war game toys don't always travel particularly well. Right. Um, right. And giving them to baggage handlers at British Airways or American Airlines or whatever, you're never going to be 100% sure what condition they're going to arrive in uh, the convention, at, uh, you know, in. Uh, whether whether the boxes have have been bashed or whatever, so uh, it, it's been a hit or miss. We've done okay. We haven't had mm-hmm. too many casualties in transit, but it, it isn't just like hopping on a plane, if you know what I mean. I do. Uh, yeah, trying trying try, try to get a games table and t- uh, toys to to a convention three thousand miles away sometimes is quite difficult. Yeah, I have some friends in the UK that sometimes when they come to a Storicon, they try to kind of like pair up with somebody here in the States. That way they just have to bring themselves in the rules. You know, yeah. they run the games. Like my buddy, um, uh, do you know the uh, rules test of resolve? Have you heard of those? Tim no, Cooper? No, I'm uh, unfamiliar with uh, that. Yeah, yeah, so he, he's he got uh, a pretty great uh, War of the Roses game now. Oh, and yeah, so he he kind of, you know pairs up with a buddy of mine that actually doesn't live too far from me in Connecticut. And like I said, like a lot of times he'll come, he'll run the games, but a, a lot of the figures will be my buddy Peter's. So I know that's okay. something that people do. Clarence, Clarence had, uh, the last time we were at Historical was a few years back, just before COVID, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And Clarence had built the table and, and painted most of the figures. And I, I just sort of turned up and uh, sort of gobbed off really. But um, yeah, I, that was good. Previously, I have shipped some stuff out in the end, what I think I did that stuff time the previous time was to just sell the figures in, in the States mm-hmm. before I came back. Yeah. So I took painted them, took them over, and then just sold them after the show. Oh, so, that's great. Uh yeah, that worked. Yeah, <laughs> that no, worked. that's smart. Yeah. Um so um all right, let's be con- slightly controversial. What do you okay. what what do you prefer? I mean, do you do you like the setup of American cons, like kind of like the I'm gonna sign up for games, or do you uh tend to prefer more of like the the demos and participation games in in the UK because I know it's very different. I've never been to a con in the UK, but um, I find I talk about them all the time. Well, I have written a couple of articles on this. For uh, I wrote one for the late Duncan McFarlane um, when he was editor at War Games Illustrated, and I've also written for the new editor Danny Falkenbridge um, mm-hmm. because 
I do write quite a lot of articles for magazines, but I also travel a lot to conventions and I also demo. So I, I've got the three perspectives, if you like, the writer's perspective, the player's perspective, and 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 also, uh, if you like, the punter's perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was talking, strangely enough, I was talking to my wife about this very subject this morning over breakfast. <laughs> and um, I'll, and I'll tell you, this is a strange story, but it's the way sometimes these things evolve. Strange tra- is great. Yeah, a track, <laughs> a, a track came on uh, the the radio when it was Boston, and my wife said, "We we always love Boston." And uh, my wife said, um, "Yeah, we saw Boston, didn't we, in in Edinburgh?" And I said, "It was yeah, it was one of the first big stadium type gigs we ever saw," and. We both remembered that the sound was terrible, not because it was Boston, they were great, but the venue was awful. It was just like a big aircraft hangar. It was terrible because what had happened was an American band had come to the UK in an era when we didn't have, we weren't geared up for stadium rock, right? Mm -hmm. And so we were still to learn that. And that got me thinking immediately in the conversation about the difference between why Americans put on great concerts outside because very often people will travel hundreds of miles to see that band. They have to stay overnight. They might make a weekend of it or whatever. And I drew the parallel with American conventions because, you know, American gamers sometimes have to travel 500 miles to go to a gaming convention. They don't get gaming at home. They don't live near neighbors who game. So they want to make an event of it. Here in the UK, on this tiny island, you can hop on a bus and 10 minutes later, you can be at the church hall where they're running some show. You can mm-hmm. go in there and buy your 100 quids worth of Perry figures, hang around for two hours, have a cup of coffee, go home and paint the figures you bought two hours before. Right. So there's a, that, that's the difference. But the reason, the reason why I tell that story is because the organization required to make an event in America is formidable because you've got the expectations of all those travelers coming mm-hmm. to meet and game. Whereas in the UK, it's usually a local event. Uh, you might travel 50 miles. Occasionally, you might travel a couple of hundred miles, but not very often more than that. So the needs of the attendees are quite different. And very often, British people are in local clubs. And they'll see each other every week or twice a week or whatever because the distances are, relatively speaking, so small. So that has driven the different approach to gaming. So very often American gaming to me or to the outsider seems quite hierarchical, quite organized, HMGS, committees, you know, office bearers, all that kind of stuff. Uh, The British, you would think, who follow rules are quite anarchic when it comes to these kind of things. (laughs) You know, they don't like office bearers. They don't like people with titles. They don't like rules. And, you know, they they just want to rock up and have their game, eat their sandwiches and, you know, have a laugh and then go home. And anything that looks remotely organized, they are very suspicious of. So do I like one or the other? Um, I love the whole energy of an American uh, event. I mean, I think they're absolutely uh, full of enthusiasm and people really want to have a good time. And that really comes across. You walk out feeling very lifted emotionally. Mm -hmm. It's like a a dopamine hit you get from an American show. Whereas over here, there's a kind, sometimes a kind of sneery sort of superiority, uh, you know, at some of the shows. Not all, they're not all like that. Um, Some shows are great, some shows are pretty poor. Um, but people just want to show their their work. So you've got these very, let's say, talented people who are putting on fantastic games, which are very photogenic. 
And then you'll have little quiet corners where people are playing competition games, DBM or DBA, whatever. And nobody goes there because, you know, that's just like a big dark cloud hanging over that area. You know, <laughs> so it looks like a cave that you don't want to go into. Right. Um, <laughs> So I'll probably get some death threats for this, but um, I, I don't mind. You know, uh, I, I tend to get something from both. I get yeah. inspiration from the British shows, yeah, uh, and I get energy from the American shows. If that makes sense, it's like you can like the Stones and the Beatles, right? Or you can yeah. like Led Zeppelin and the Beach Boys. Mm. You know, so to- totally, uh, totally. I mean, one of the things that's quite uh, struck me as being quite um, a marked difference between uh, American games at conventions and uh, British games is that very often uh, at an American show you will see games that could be quite um, easily lifted out in the 1980s or 1990s. So, you know, carpet tile hills and, you know, very simple terrain and, you know, mm-hmm. fig- figures. People are People are gaming for the game, not for the aesthetics of the yep. game. Uh, now, there's nothing wrong with that, but it can seem a bit like a time warp sometimes when you've seen a table that the Perrys have put on or Dave Andrews has put on or whatever, and then you you see this. But, of course, there are some fantastic games that I've seen, uh, spectacular games at, at conventions in the States. So it's not it's not a, a, you know, a complete binary British games look fantastic and American games don't. That's just nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um you, but there is a difference in approach. There's definitely a difference in approach. No, totally. Um, in terms of like the whole idea of kind of like the time warp, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, I go to a lot of cons, you know. Um, I tend to be one of the younger people at them, you know. Um, there's definitely an old guard, I think, Um you know, at a lot of these cons and, you know, in some cases they've had collections that just go back so mm. long, you know, yeah. also, you know what I mean? So, yeah. and I find that a lot of the more modern games that are there, a lot of times it's like tournaments, you know, um, yes. I don't know what your experience is, but that's what I kind of find, you know, a lot. I, so I, gen- I generally avoid tournaments at all Me costs. Too. Um, yeah. I, I just don't like the, it could be too stressful. Um, I don't. I would not like conflict in my hobby, and it's one of the reasons why I don't. It's interesting because it's a hobby about conflict. Really, that's quite ironic, isn't it? But um, I don't like conflict in gaming situations, which is a reason why I'm not a member of a club. I, mm-hmm. I don't like the. Uh, you can't really control that. Um, I suppose that's just maybe psychologically quite a lot about me that I like to control my environment, but. Um, I'm psychoanalyzing myself here. But mm-hmm. seriously, uh, sometimes the politics of a club are not edifying. Yeah. Well, I can't speak to the idea of a club per se, just because I feel like a little bit like you, I kind of bounce around. Like I've got different groups of people who I game with and am friends with and, and are you know into different periods or different rules, things like that. But I will say this, um, and I've been saying this for years, and I say it in my classroom a lot just because I use so many games, like when I'm teaching history. Um, people change when you put dice in their hands, you know? <laughs> and I, I too, have been in, in in those moments, like, where people get tunnel vision on the board. And by the way, myself included. Like, there are certain yeah. games that, like, I just don't play anymore because I can get that way, you know? Yeah. So, believe me, like, I, you know, I mean, in some cases, when... 
I've played in tournaments like when I was younger, when I walk by tournaments. I mean, there's some people who they're just really into that style of gaming, you know, and they're very pleasant. And then for some people, it's literally like their identity and whether they yeah. win and lose it, it really matters to them in the same way as like getting a good grade or, you know, you know, putting really well, you know, during your day of golf. You know, I don't know if you how how much golf you guys play overseas, but. Uh, well, it did, it did, uh, <laughs> just just for your uh, American listeners, who I'm sure yeah. know this already, the game did originate in my country, Scotland. So <laughs> we we are the originators of golf. Yeah. By the uh, way, that shows exactly how much I know about the sport of golf. Yeah. Which, by the uh, way, hopefully my students are not listening because a lot of them are golfers. <laughs> all right. Okay. Well, good. But um, I, I think coming back to that subject that you just yes. um, alluded to there, for the 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 tolerance line for me, if you like the. The, the line that I, I just would not cross and which I really kind of hate to see is where people will cheat to win. Yeah. Uh, you know, that is just to me, if you have to cheat at something to win, I mean, who are you actually kidding? And I think that <laughs> is, that is the bit that really kind of turned me off a lot of club games. I, always, I do tell the story occasionally, but I remember when I was part of a club years ago, there was a guy who I really quite liked the guy. He was a nice guy. Um, and he used to sit constantly rolling dice at the side of the table. I mean, literally, it was nonstop. He just kept rolling, 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 even when nothing was happening on the table. And I said to him one day, I said, what, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. He said, oh, I'm rolling out the ones. Ugh. And, you know, I thought to myself, wow, wow. <laughs> you know, that's a conversation killer. Um, yeah. But... You know, when you've got to that stage, uh, then you got to think, well, what's going on? You know, yeah. Like I said, I I think that people change, and it, when your identity is being a good gamer, I you can you sometimes people can kind of go down that rabbit hole. Thankfully, though, I don't know. I I found again when I was more younger. I think when I was younger, I I found um, especially playing like you know, Warhammer 40k at the local comic store, you definitely would see a little bit. Thankfully, I don't see that a ton amongst my historical gamer friends. Honestly, the kinds of games that we play, we're just there to have fun, you know, and obviously we want something that's challenging, right? Um, You know what I mean, so. Absolutely, and I think what happens is, for a lot of people, where you've got freedom of choice in terms of your opponents or the environment that you game in, then you will self-select the people that you'll game with. And so that conflict will diminish because you automatically move away from the people who would be in conflict with your ideas or your way that you'd want to play. So that right. that, that probably happens. You've probably done that subliminally uh, and you know just moved away from the people who would annoy you. Yeah. Um, just towards people who have got the general sort of same outlook as you on life. Yeah, no, 100%. I agree with you very much. Um, So if we, dare I say, if we get into a little bit of nitty gritty, all right, and I know that in terms of our audience, um, I know that there's probably some teachers listening, there's definitely gamers listening. So nitty gritty. Um, When you sit down and write rules, um, what do you find to be your go-tos? Or what do you find to be... Um, the mechanics that you find that you really kind of enjoy and find, you know, important to your style of game? I hope that's a fair question. No, it's a fair question. I think it's an absolute legitimate question for anyone that's putting forward a a set of rules to be played by other people. Um, You have to, I mean, first of all, enjoyment is the primary principle for me. So it's got to be good fun to do it. Uh, And 
a byproduct of that is not having a headache at the end of the game. Uh, and, you know, there's so many War Games rules will give players a headache. And, you know, they need to go and lie down in the dark for a while after they've had a game. I mean, that's it's, it shouldn't be like going to the dentist or something like that. It should be a good experience. So that balanced with a realism of what's being represented on the table, as much as a tabletop game can be, bearing in mind that you've got all sorts of distortions of scale and perspective. Um, and that's the thing that I think you've got to be able to disconnect your mind between what's on the table and what it's actually trying to represent and try and make a bridge between those two things because I think a lot of real writers don't do that. Uh, and it's got to feel a little bit like the period that you are. So you need to know a little bit about the period uh, that you're representing. If you don't know about the mechanics or the tactics or the thought processes or even the political backdrop, which very often uh, informs the way a war is fought, as we can see every day watching the conflict in Ukraine, mm-hmm. then all, all these things have got to be kind of taken into consideration. And do I do that? Yes, I try and do that. The biggest breakthrough though, that I've had over the last 10 years has been trying to align all the different sets of rules that we've written with common mechanisms so that if people play one of our games and then they move to another one, they'll recognise the mechanisms. Right. So they won't have to relearn. Uh, they won't have to use different tools. They won't have to use different concepts. Now, that doesn't mean that each game will be the same. Uh, and the way that we uh, aligned a lot of our rule sets was to use um, different dice to represent different troop types. So we standardized on D6 to represent the poorest quality troops, D8 to represent the average quality troops, and D10 to represent the best quality troops, and occasionally D12s. But using those different uh, polyhedral dice, um, a lot of gamers don't like to do that. It's they're D6 guys, and you know I'm a D6 guy, and that's all I like to throw. But by introducing different dice types, you can actually declutter QRSs and factors and all sorts of stuff because that's really accommodated within the probabilities that are created by the different dice types. So Clarence Harrison turned me on to that first. And then what we did was, so if you look back, for example, at the first edition of Lily Banners, it's quite different in principle than the third edition. The third edition of Lily Banners, uh, which Clarence and I wrote after Historicon, we literally sat down, we'd been at Historicon for four days, it was about five years ago, six years ago, and after the convention we had a couple of days together, we just got some um, small tables set up in a hotel room and we walked through new mechanisms. We literally sat with books and wrote down all the probabilities and outcomes of playtesting things again and again and again. I've still got those handwritten notes, mm-hmm. um, but that was, Lily Banners was literally, the, the core of it, the spine of the new style uh, third edition was created in, in, a, in a hotel room at Historicon two days after the convention. And then we went to print with that pretty much. Um, and we've since then retrofitted that structure to other rule sets like the Mad for War, which is the um, naval rules for the 17th century we've just brought out, for Donnybrook, um, which is the skirmish set for that period, and for other rule sets that we've got. So 
yeah, I know, long answer to a short question, what are the principles? Coming back to them again, um, enjoyment is the first one, a connection with the reality of what it has to represent, trying to avoid people having a headache, uh, and, and also that that um, period knowledge which it tries to reconcile the falseness of a game with the reality of, of the horror it's trying to represent, if you like. Right. Um, so what I loved about that answer, first off, you never have to worry about a long answer on this podcast. We like okay. long answers. I think what stands out to me more than anything else, especially selfishly from my point of view in terms of bridging the gap, or I shouldn't say bridging the gap necessarily, but like the connection between like game-based learning and education is the amount of skill that you need in order to do what you're talking about. It makes it, uh, it makes games and game developing so great for students because ultimately you're talking about probability. You're talking about historical background. You're talking about trial and error. You're talking about um, cause and effect, watching a game happen, watching players reaction, knowing those players, and then being able to use that information to kind of inform you. I mean, you're literally describing what I try to do in the classroom, not every day, but quite often. Um, so uh, again, like um, great answer, like really great answer. Um, one of the, yeah, one go of for the, it. So I was just gonna say one of the things that I think is an important is 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 an important perspective to adopt as a gamer. Maybe some people don't care about it, right? But I, I think it's important, and it's also important from a historical point of view. If you're trying to teach people about history, is that um, in war games, very often people will fight with whatever the unit is to the last man, the last figure. Now. Okay, to the wiped out. Now, the, the instances of that happening in history are almost zero. Mm-hmm. And nobody, or very rarely, do people get wiped out. Um, in fact, armies that are taking casualties at a rate of about 10% um, are, are likely to be really concerned. I mean, so 10%, 1 in 10 is the, the origin of decimation, if you like, as a term. Um, it was a catastrophic loss. 10% is a catastrophic loss. So, recognising that your rules have to accommodate the fact that human beings are not automatons. They will not fight until they're knocked down. So many other things will influence their willingness to stand and fight for something and the possibility that they might run away. Um, You've got to sort of then reconcile what is the casualty rate in in a war game representing. It's representing, in my view, not kills or people dying or being maimed, it's um, operational effectiveness. Mm-hmm. So as the casualty rate goes up, the operational effectiveness of the unit is coming down. It doesn't represent, you know, 900 men from 1,000 being killed. It just means that 1,000 men are not operating optimally anymore. Right. And therefore, their ability to contribute to the cause, whatever that is, is diminished. And I think that's what – it's one of the things that, for me, is quite important in a, in a working set of rules that you are – managing the operational effectiveness of an asset as opposed to killing people. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if that is a distinction that pacifists would appreciate, but I certainly would if I was a soldier, um, not want to think that somebody was going to stand me up till I was knocked down. So it's it's an important thing. But a lot of people think, um, you know, well, you know, the old guard have to fight to the last man. Well, you know, the old guard retreated at Waterloo. They didn't fight to the last man, did they? They were going to be the best soldiers in Europe. So, but you know, go figure. No, for sure. I mean, again, like, you know, in my own classroom, we talk a lot about this, um, especially 
you know, like your point about when you're fighting a battle, like the idea of, you know, killing and, you know, a lot of times what I try to get across to my high school students is like the idea that you're simply fighting until the enemy breaks. Like you're fighting until they don't want to fight anymore. And how are you going to get to that point? So like even going over concepts like um, interdiction fire or just things like that aren't actually necessarily like the priority is not necessarily killing. It might be to, you know, hamper communications or like keep troops from, you know, connecting with one another and things like that. And that for kids can be sometimes hard to understand, especially like whether they're a gamer or not, even watching movies and things along those lines. I think they think a lot of battles are like the Alamo, you know? Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, You know, so that might just simply be like Hollywood or literature's kind of impact on them, you know? Well, I mean, that's, that's an interesting topic as well, because, you know, I think one of the things that a lot of hobbyists and amateur historians and gamers are quite sniffy about as if they watch a historical movie and some uniform detail is inaccurate, a button's wrong or they've got the wrong dog lock on their musket or whatever. Um, now, that is just a sort of odd snobbery because actually these movies, even if they're greatly sort of flawed in, in some way in terms of accuracy, are making some kind of history accessible to people that might not normally have looked at it or paid attention to it. So I think a balance has got to be struck there between um, what contribution uh, an entertainment industry might make to understanding and the accuracy of what you're looking at. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah. Um, I find a lot of that as well. Like, um, But I, I don't know, for me personally, I don't necessarily look at it as snobbery per se. I just find some gamers are just so type A. Like they're so <laughs> anal about things. Like, you know, when I paint miniatures, it's like, I don't have to have every figure looking exactly the same. Like sometimes I'll use different browns or leather colors on, you know, uh, bandoliers or on bags or things like that. And And again, like, don't get me wrong. There are certain things that I'm very type A about. Like, Oddly enough, I'm more type A about like how figures go in boxes than how my <laughs> figures actually look. But for some people, it's like the end of the world. Like they will really be flummoxed and panicked. Like if one German figure, their jacket is a little greener than gray for like your World War One unit, you know? Uh, it's, it's crazy. I mean, I always say uh, this is something that comes up all the time because the, the knowledge of 17th century uniforms and equipment is quite patchy. So I'm constantly being asked questions about this. Um, you know, what color should I paint the guy's neckerchief or this figure's cuffs? What what color should they be? And what shade of yellow should I use? And all this kind of stuff. I would just say, look, go and watch Platoon mm-hmm. and look at the best equipped uh, and funded army in the world in the field, and show me two men that are dressed the same. Right. Yeah. There's. You know, they're all wearing their own versions. They've got cut off jackets, they've got no jacket, they've got bandoliers on, you know, they've got the helmet on the wrong way around, some of them are wearing soft hats. I mean, these are guys in the field making a choice, what's comfortable for them. So what what does it matter what your figure looks like? (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I can be a bit much like when it comes to stuff like this because I I don't know, like I've always been this way. I'm easily driven crazy, I guess. You know what I say I I try to say to myself, one of the beauties of this hobby, right? Um, do whatever you want. Like, you know, yeah. if you want to make sure that every figure looks the same or every cuff is identical, all the power to you, you know, as long as I don't have to do it, you know, um, I tend to, I tend to be okay, okay with it. You know, I will say uniformity is something that I guess just people are just drawn to it. Right. Especially when it comes to their minis and their tabletops and stuff like that. So, well, 
we're just about to, Clarence and I are working on a new book just now, which uh, I wrote it um, over a period of five years or more. It is a um, detailed history, as much as I could research it, of the Irish Jacobite army in 1691. Mm -hmm. uh, and as the losing army in that war, there's very little information available simply because the winners have rewritten history and generally sure. airbrushed it out. Now, we decided to illustrate every single regiment at a particular battle, the climactic battle of the war in Ireland, um, fought not far away from where Joe Biden was just uh, visiting the last mm -hmm. couple of days. And Clarence and I are at the moment agonising over He's done. He's done some absolutely beautiful plates for this book, but we're literally um, saying: Is that waistcoat too long? Is that shade of brown too dark? Uh, is that bandolier uh, in the right position on the guy's shoulder? And um, because we know that when we put this book out, beautiful as the artwork will be, we're going to have some of the type A's, as you've said, or button counters, as I would call them, um, <laughs> criticising the sock length, whether the buckle in the shoe is the right shape, because that's what people do. And yeah. if you put if you put something out in the public domain and you want people to pay for it, then everybody's got a right to an opinion. And, you know, if, yeah. they're paying the, if they're paying the money to buy the book, then they've got the right to say what they, they, they have to say. Very often, though, the people who criticise most are the people who are never going to buy your work or your figures or whatever. Right. So, um, you know. Well, I think about that too. Like, um, I love the miniatures page. I mean, I've I've been going on the miniatures page for probably as long as it's been around. You know, um, I wonder sometimes if those people that are that critical about everything, whether it's critical about conventions or critical about rules, things like that, I actually wonder sometimes if they actually play. Do they you know probably, what I mean? They probably don't. You know, um, there, there is there is a sort of chattering class out there that doesn't do anything other than chatter. Yeah. Um, you know, the you get, doers tend not to be that visible because they're too busy doing stuff. Yeah. So people that do things, they either game or they paint or whatever, they're off doing that. People who are on the internet, you know, making comments every day or criticizing probably aren't doing anything else. Yeah. Uh, they probably they're probably not playing at all. Yeah, which is real sad, especially given how fun the hobby can be, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, you just you just pick your pick your route, uh, Jared. That's what I would say. And, you know, paddle down that particular uh, canal or whatever and, 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 and just kind of try and blot out the white noise. Yeah, for sure. So I know that we're I mean, I'm just looking at the time, you know, we're definitely getting to that to that sort of point. Um I I have one one more question for you when it comes to like rules writing. And I kind of just want to get your take on this because it's something that I think about a lot when it comes to players getting a chance to be active during a game. Mm -hmm. What are your feelings on activation systems? Like what kinds of activation systems? And by the way, if you're listening and you are new to wargaming, what I mean when I say activation is when you sit down and you're playing a team game and you've got a couple of people on your team, um, you know, there's I go, you go games where essentially uh, your entire army, like you and all your players on your team, everything moves. And then, you know, the opponents move and you go through a pretty specific sequence. Right now, there's some other types of games where it's more like you might draw a card or pull a die out of the bag or something along those lines in order to figure out when troops are allowed to move and what they're allowed to do. So, um, Barry, what's your kind of go to? What's your take on this? Um you know, in terms of like how you run a game. 
Well, it was a great uh, introduction there in terms of your positioning that for people that might not be familiar with the topic. We have used all of the above. So we've used we Donnybrook is the card-driven system, as is Clarence's English Civil War rules of victory without quarter. Um, the Republic to Empire is an I-go-you-go system. Um, and Beneath the Lily Banners is a simultaneous movement system. So we've used them all. Now, one, they all can work equally well if people understand the rationale uh, for choosing it as, as the mechanism. And I usually try and explain that at the beginning of, of a rule set, why we've chosen the, the system that we've chosen. The other thing, of course, though, that I would say is there's another dimension to this uh, activation, and that is that if you look at any army uh, or fleet or whatever, uh, deployed, it is almost uh, unknown for every single unit to move at the same time. Mm -hmm. So I always put a limitation on the proportion of troops within a force that can activate, because no general would, you know, order a you know a, a universal advance of every unit at the same time. That would just be chaos. Right. So what we tend to do is use a system of activation. So you have to make a choice. So you, you first of all find a proportion of your troops. It could be none. Uh, it could be 25%, 50%, 75%, 100%. And then you have to get the orders to activate those. So that's another, it, it really makes, it, it creates decision points in games. It also focuses the mind of the player. Um, one of the things that I've done quite a lot of looking into over the years, I was going to say research, but that would sort of um, dignify it and, and make it sound scientific. <laughs> and it's, it's not as as scientific as that. But there's an optimum number of units that a wargamer can control without starting to have a mental breakdown or a meltdown. Mm -hmm. You give you know, people love massive armies, but if you actually ask a player to control and give orders to a massive army, they get very frustrated, bored, angry, and they lose concentration. You're much better to give people a command that they can process mentally, a brigade, a division, a corps, or whatever, and say, right, you work with that. Now, it might be 10 subunits or five subunits or six sub subunits, but most people can deal with that in their heads. Give them too much, it creates a paralysis and they don't enjoy it. Yeah. So um, there has to be a bit of mental conditioning goes on. So breaking down the the subunits into manageable and enjoyable sub proportions or portions of, of the whole is really important, I think, to, to a gaming experience. Yeah. So it's like trying to find that balance between a little bit of almost like an almost like an asynchronous nature to the way in which an army moves. You know, so some people might be moving and then maybe later in a phase, the rest of the team moves and like finding a way to kind of not speed that along, but make it so that whoever is kind of waiting for their turn, like let's say other troops got prioritized, kind of make it so that person is still able to kind of focus on the game. It's real challenging to kind of nail that, I find. Or give people other things to do. Mm. So what we've done, especially when I organize like gaming weekends, is we usually have events taking place. We have event cards and things. So even if your troops are not physically moving, shooting, or fighting, you might have an issue to deal with at that turn. So a fire or, you know, some crisis, your wagon train gets stuck in the muddle or whatever, but something happens, 
and, and people just want stuff to do. Yeah. Um, they don't necessarily want to be rolling dice and, and you know, killing people. They, they just want to be active, as you say. Uh, so that is uh, a real important thing because a lot, we, we had a game recently. We played a 12 turn game, which lasted two hours and there was not a single shot fired in the entire game. Now, I know that sounds terminally boring. Mm-hmm. But we we played the game online because one of the things that we learned to do during COVID was to set up. I'll have a table set up in my house. Um, every Thursday, my friends dial in. Mm-hmm. I they give the orders to the the troops. I move them. They do all the dice rolling in their house. We have a great time, and we had this game, which was uh, I was the games master of a a Dutch privateer uh, ship, and uh, the the other players were were playing with a, a squadron of English royalist ships, and for the entire game we moved and maneuvered and bluffed without a shot being fired. And at the end, both players said it was one of the best war games they'd had in years. And we never fired a single shot. Yeah, it's all about decisions, right? I mean, (laughs) the decisions you're making and maneuver matters. Look at the Ohm campaign. I I remember being a kid and like looking at that whole maneuver that Napoleon made and it was like, where where is the big battle, you know? Now, granted, obviously there was fighting happening, but sometimes it's all about maneuver, you know, and outpositioning the enemy. So, Um, Barry, I got to tell you, this was a lot of fun. I mean, again, I, I feel like I say this to my guests a lot that eventually you're going to have have to definitely come on again. Um, what's Happy going on in the, yeah, for sure. What's going on in the future? Like, are you doing, um, are you writing anything new or working on anything new? Yeah. I mentioned the Jacobite uh, uniforms book right now. Uh, we're working on that. That should be out by the summer of 2023. We are working also on a fourth edition of beneath the lily banners. Um, mm-hmm. And we'll also have, another hard copy of Donnybrook out uh, this year. Uh, I've got a huge number of new figures being uh, released for Warfare Miniatures. We've got War of the Spanish Succession, English, British uh, and French uh, Mm -hmm. and also new Grand Alliance figures for the French period as well. So I I would think we probably released maybe about 150 new figures this year uh, over the next few months. So lots of stuff happening. Yeah, Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah. If someone wants to find you um, on the internet, not in a creepy way, but get in contact <laughs> with you, or where where would be the best place for them to go? Would it be a website or your blog? Or yeah, there's a League of Augsburg blog, uh, so it's League of Augsburg blog spot. Uh, League of Augsburg has a Facebook page. Um, I'm on quite a lot of the forums like the 17th Century Warfare, Beneath the Lily Banners Forum, Mad for mm-hmm. War Forum, Donnybrook Forum, and we also have a website, League of Augsburg website. So if you put League of Augsburg in uh, or you put it in Google's images, uh, you're going to get very quickly get stuff that's related to what I, my work because it's a very esoteric name, League of Augsburg. So my work seems to come up when you put that in. Yeah, and I think I, I hope for listeners, if you're still with us, um, which I'm sure you are, um, I think an important takeaway is like how modern, um, how modern everything is that you do. Like in terms of the way that you put yourself out there, the way that you put your rules out there. Like you've evolved over time. Like you were talking about how I guess in the early '90s, like that's when that first beneath the lily banners, uh, you know, rule set was written. So it's like almost like in a way, what I'm trying to say is with no disrespect to the person that's still using the felt table or like the books under the table, you know, at a con and plastic figures, um, you've kind of pushed forward the hobby, which I think is really, really, really important, you know? So a huge kudos to you um, for doing all of that. Thanks for that. I'll take that. <laughs> oh, definitely. You do it. You should. Um, so again, uh, Barry, thank you. And by the way, just for our listeners, before I sign off, um, 
you know, if you have been listening to this podcast, and I know that you have, because just in terms of looking at our numbers, it's kind of remarkable that for the first three episodes that we've done, we've basically doubled and tripled um, our uh, viewership and downloads and things from episode one to two and to three. Um, if you're listening and you live really anywhere in the U.S., um, or if you live in another part of the world and you want to kind of do what HMGS Next Gen Inc. is doing, which is sort of getting out there and getting kids playing and um, setting up events at libraries or with companies or things along those lines, you should always feel free to go to the Next Gen website, www.nextgengaming.org. Um, and you can find us on Instagram. It's pretty easy. So again, uh, Barry, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. It was a great pleasure. All right. Awesome. Yeah. See you later. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to today's 20-sided gamified podcast. I hope you got as much out of the conversation as I did. If you're interested in learning more about the organizations I work with, please visit www.nextgengaming.org and www.nasaga.org. My Instagram handle is HMGS underscore nextgen underscore inc. Until next time, be well, get some gaming in, and roll some 20s. Thank you so much. Thank you.